0: G'day, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Code 9. I'm your host, Tiffany Cook, and today our guest has come described as the godfather of police veteran peer support and well-being. His name is Mick Cummins, and he has over three decades of experience in policing. He has had a couple of stints training police officers in Iraq, and we have an awesome chat about... His experience as a police officer from 19 years old, his experience getting the peer support program up and running and funded and being a massive, massive part of that and the learnings that have come along the way for him. So I think you're going to really love what Mick has to share. I cannot thank him enough for his vulnerability and everything that he has done in his time with Victoria Police. And after, over to the conversation. Mick Cummins, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Yeah, very good. Thank you, Tiff, for inviting me.
0: I tell you what, it is a pleasure. You've, your tires have been well and truly pumped up, so <laughs> you've got some, you've got some a mighty high bar that's been set for
1: you. Yeah, <laughs> I hope I don't disappoint. <laughs>
0: I don't think you're going to. I don't think you're going to at all. The godfather of police veteran peer support is how Mark Thomas cho- chooses to describe you. So that's a fair badge of honour to be yeah, sporting, isn't I've it? I've been
1: thinking about that more than once and uh, I don't know whether to be uh, insulted or not, but that's fine. <laughs> I can live with it.
0: <laughs> oh, beautiful. Look, tell us a bit about yourself, Mick.
1: Uh, right. Um, i Well, I suppose I joined the police force in 1976 as a 19-year-old, just turned 19, grew up in the bush in the Upper Murray, uh, Victoria. Yeah, Yeah, there was no future for me there. So I had an older brother in the police force and he said, come on down. And that was – I applied for New South Wales and Victoria and Victoria accepted me first. Came down, did the 20 weeks of um, the training, which um, compared to working with dad on the driving camps was pretty easy. I, look, I'm not academically strong, but I mean, I got through sort of just. They gave me an extra couple of weeks out there to um, hone up my English skills. <laughs> so I uh, did that, graduated. Yeah, worked around the city for a little bit um, and then transferred down to Apollo Bay on the coast. When I was down there, I met my wife, Barb, and um, or just before I'd gone, transferring down there, I met my wife, Barb, and I come back to the city the early '80s went to the Crime Car Squad for a, two or three years. Enjoyed that in Altona North, in the Western suburbs. Um, she was the Wild West those days. Realised that there was probably more to life than the policing, con, you know, policing and the how do I say this nicely? Staying in the city and and chasing promotion and stuff. So I transferred to the to the bush up to Alexandra, and then I worked around Alexandra, Hildon Mansfield Highway Patrol. I went down to Can River for a bit, took a promotion all the time. I left my family like in the Alexandra area, so they weren't chasing me around the countryside. Took a transfer to D24 as a sergeant in the mid-90s, I think it was, and then it shut down virtually six months later, and then it went to the privatised model. So I then went back to Seymour for a few months and then probably spent the next – oh, a year and a half, relieving at Marysville. Then I went back to district training office at Moorabbin for a bit. Oh, sorry, Russell Street, Paran, Moorabbin. And then I was sitting there. Um, I had 12 months off leave without pay, went overseas to university in England and studied for 12 months. And then when I come back, sort of sat there staring at the walls for a week, wondering what I was going to do and why am I here? And then... I. Uh, Phone call out of the blue, said, can you come back and relieve at Marysville for another year or so? So I did that. Uh, About 2001, Barb and I, my wife and I chatted about um, good opportunities for our children and basically where we were didn't provide those. So um, we moved over to Molden, kids went to school at um, Christian College in Maryborough. They finished their education at that time probably I was, probably by about 2005 or six I knew I was done with policing there was I was just um, I think for a whole lot of reasons probably a bit of a mental health probably a bit of it um, I picked some stupid fights with managers that you could whoops sorry that I could never win but I thought I could um, which is probably a sure indication of not being where I should be in the headspace wise. Towards the end of 2006, I decided I'd had enough of policing and I got a job working over in Iraq training Iraqi police. I went and did that on and off till about April 2007 and I come back, handed my resignation papers in and after 30 years and four months, walked away. During that time, I did uh, about 2002, 2003, I... Did the peer support program for Victoria Police? It was probably I was on about course number two, I guess. Everyone claims to be in there the first one, but I wasn't, so I won't claim that one. <laughs> I did that for a while, and then um, I did that, you know, right through. Did the course? They wanted to boot me off because I was too cynical, but uh, Joe Gadsis, the um, the clinical psychologist said, no, we need cynical people. Keep him on, keep him on. So I did that, and yeah, I was really enjoyed it. I was really, It sort of re-sparked my interest a bit in in mental health things and, and and good mental health for the people I was working with. So I had some good outcomes there. Then when I left the job uh, in 2007, I still kept an eye on ring up, mates. you know how you're travelling, you're still taking your medications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then well, after I left the police force, I just did all the boys' own jobs that I wanted to do. I drove cranes, drove trucks, worked in health and safety, worked – and this is no real sequence – I worked in New Zealand after the first earthquake and uh, during the second earthquake, I was about a k and a half out of the CBD, which um, which was fairly scary um, came back from that for about a week and then went back and did a whole heap of um, extra work over there for about another four or five months and then come back. And that sort of gave me the foot in the door of occupational health and safety work. So am I allowed to use the word bullshit? Oh, you can use all the words you like, No, I won't use naughty ones. Um, I bullshitted (laughs) my way into a um, health and safety job and then once I got my foot in the door, that was on a mine site, and then once I got my foot in the door, that was it. Um, I then started to uh, contract out to some engineers that I'd met and got on quite well with, and they liked the way that I went around went about the business. I always had the view that everyone in the room is smarter than I am, but I'm quite good at dealing with people in stressful situations, and a lot of the health and, con- health and safety construction work was. I mean, you're pulling people up, doing unsafe work, but you had to give them a safer alternative. So mm-hmm. I was quite good at it. About 2014, 15, I guess. Um, Vicki key. Um, she was uh, in the retired police association. I think she was a vice president. She rang me up out of the blue one day and said, "Oh, we're thinking about starting up a peer support program for the." We didn't call them police veterans those days, you know, for ex police. She'd been approached by Joe Gadzis and uh, a serving inspector at that time at the homicide squad. And they basically said there is nothing post-policing for anyone. Mm. And I knew that. Um, and I knew that from my own experience and I knew that from just talking to other people. So I said, yeah, why not? How hard can this be? You know, how much work can it involve? And um, there was a learning curve from <laughs> that time on. Vicky was really good. She she did the – took the, oh, bookings is the right word, but she fielded a lot of the phone calls and then – did off the referrals and all that sort of stuff, and we we made it up as we went. There was no committee, mm. there was no CEO, there was no nothing. There's just the two of us, and we get on the phone and ring each other and go, well, "What do you think about this?" Yep, yeah, we'll go down that path. Support the people the best we can, and really, that's how it evolved. And we had no money. Uh, eventually, there was a bloke called Gil Martin, a doctor Gil Martin from America, that the police association bought out to talk about mental health in policing. And, and he was he was an ex-Vietnam uh, vet, Marine, joined the police force, did a psychology degree. He was in, you know, their SWAT teams and stuff. So really good guy, really nice guy. So he would go and do the talks for the serving members, and he did them at Ballarat Pendigo down at Festival Hall from memory. And Vicky and I would go there with buckets, literally buckets, as in plastic buckets with handles, and we'd stand outside and say, look, this is the work we're doing, and we'd, we'd get a lead in from the people doing the program inside. <clears throat> these are the people we're going to support. So these guys, you know, men and women, I use guys figuratively across the spectrum, um, they'd come out and we'd sit in there with a bucket rattling it, and they'd chuck in coins, notes and stuff, and that probably gave us three or four grand, and that was enough for us to to keep the program on the road. Now, during all this, we recruited, I think it was 16 Um, people that have retired out of VicPol or resigned out of VicPol that have done the peer support training program. Mm -hmm. So we brought them on board and they were our guys in the field besides Vicky and I. So we did that, we did that, we did that, made all the mistakes in the world, everything that we were told by Joe Gadsis as a psychologist not to do, we would do. We kept – kept those people on board, and that gave us enough money and cash to if they went and had a cup of coffee somewhere and they wanted to reclaim it as an expense, we could do it. Yeah. So fast forward, I guess it was about 2016, maybe the end thereof, I did a uh, – we got a phone call one day, Vicky and I, to go in and see um, Chief Commissioner Graham, and uh, we thought, hang on, what's going on here? This is not good. You know, We are our own little – Little circus out there doing things, and he and good on Graham Ashton for doing what he did. He called us in and he said, You know, what exactly do you guys do? And um, we explained the whole program to him. And he said, Well, he said, But you know, they're our problem. We created the the broken people. And I was Vicky <laughs> you know, and I looked at him and said, well, We can't argue with that. And um, he then went on and had a bit of a discussion about it. And we told him what we're doing, and then he offered as much support as he could from within VicPol. So he gave us some, funded a position for a mental health worker and then he gave us access to the on-call psych system so that if somebody rang up and they were unwell, they could be triaged and then sent off. So at that time, I believe in Australia, probably worldwide, that was um, groundbreaking in terms of what services were being provided to what is now the police veteran community. So we had quite a few meetings with Graham's over the time, and then what he did in with um, the president of the oh sorry the secretary of the police association, Wayne Gat. They organised that head to head walk 2018. Where in October Wayne left Mildura and uh, Graham left Malacuta and they walked and they met at um, Wangaratta, and that raised a lot of money uh, uh, about five hundred thousand dollars in uh, money. Yeah. So that gave us a good foundational it took us a long time to get that money it was tied up because we we weren't a trust, we didn't have any charitable organization. It had to go into a Vicpole centric system that it took a long time to get the money back out of. But you know we, we had what we needed to operate sort of thing. and then we went to a full-blown committee model with the CEO and then all the things you know we got the charitable status um, fast forward to Dave McGowan now who's the CEO and running it and doing a fantastic job Becks Beck is one of the old, the mental health worker that, that does a lot of the face-to-face stuff so probably about 2018 um, Vic stepped away from Vicky stepped away from the program she picked up a lung condition that just no, I'm not talking out of school there, just made it too unwell for her to go out into the public. And, you know, she, you know, didn't want to pick up any respiratory sort of illness, knocked her around a bit. So I was sitting there one day and looked around and I thought, oh, just me. <laughs> anyway, we went through that committee model and then went through um, uh, they got it up and running and then I was on the committee of management for a while, but it's not my go. I'm not very good at committees. I tend to yeah, I just don't function very well. I think that's the nicest way I can put it. It's nothing to do with anyone else on any of these committees. It's more to do with me. So I stepped away from that and just did the peer work until and I was probably this year, maybe April, May this year. I sort of stepped back from that a fair bit too. And um, I've still got people that um, it's probably five or six that I still have regular contact with, and I'll have contact with them. You know, probably till the day they die or I die, one of the two. We've just got a relationship, and it's just a ring up, how you going, sort of thing. I guess yeah, the peer program, you know, was in its infancy. um, We lost a few along the way with suicide; they were never going to be saved. You know, I knew that. Um, It still hurts, Mm. but it probably what it did is it made us um, made the organisation sit back and think about exactly what was wrong and you know when you see even today um police association you know they're launching a campaign for better conditions and they've done that survey where you know one and four are thinking of snatching it and all that sort of stuff and it's a tough gig you know but they're all tough you know paramedics tough life um see, you know ses um surf lifesavers you know prison guards whatever you know it's a tough gig especially if you think you're not supported by the organisation you're working for, which is a big one, and then when you become unwell, just how supported you are. And I always sort of tell this story. There was a guy I still um, make contact with and, you know, I did in 2015. I think I've been talking to him that long, but he tells the story of being mentally unwell going into a hospital in the western suburbs. And at the same time, there was another one from his unit um, had broken his leg. So he's in one bed, medicated. The guy with the busted legs, six rooms down. The manager, supervisor, call them what they want, walk past his room, looked in and just nodded, kept walking. And he said, I could hear him laughing down in the the guy with a broken leg. So he said, they understood that. But they didn't understand me and I thought, yeah, you know, there's <clears throat> there's a message there for everyone forever. But you know, who knows? I guess it's better than it was, but it's still got an awful long way to go.
0: Question I've never after all the conversations that I have had, both with police but also paramedics and fireies, anyone in the emergency services, and I've never ever asked this question before. Do you know? or do you have any thoughts around is it prevalent that a bunch of people don't even recognize their mental health impact until they've actually left the job left the environment and the whole nervous system gets a chance to kind of calm down and face normality again
1: oh absolutely i mean you go i, I suppose if i look at it across my journey journey when i joined in 1976 i graduated in 77 I'd probably been to my first, um yeah, it was called cot death those days, SIDS by about, say, the August of that, August, September of that year. So I was a 20-year-old boy. Um, no one, like I went back to the office, uh, typed up the paperwork. No one spoke about it. Um, if you went to a bad prank, no one spoke about it. And you had to have that, I don't know, stiff upper lip, I guess. Yeah. Some... People, you could see them were using it to using alcohol to cope. Mm -hmm. Do it once, but the more you do it more than once, and you're using that as your coping mechanism, which is no good. So, what the question you say about leaving the job, I'll give you a comparison. If I'd gone to Vietnam in 1972 or 71 or 60s as a young soldier and done my 12 months over there and come back, 40, 50 years later, and I'm not well, I can ring up the Department of Veteran Affairs and get a claim in, get the whole thing going. I can be supported. If I'm a policeman from the 60s and 70s who left then, who rang up WorkSafe, Gallagher-Bassett, any of the insurers, and said, look, I'm not travelling too well, you would hear the the phone being hung up from Mildura. That is the, the nature of the game because... It's not fair and it's not equal, but that's what happens. So and the thing that I say, and it's probably the wrong thing to say, is to any time I'm addressing or talking to serving members, get at least one mental health claim in because if you don't, it's damn damn near impossible to do it five or six years down the track because the system won't let you. And if it does, it'll fight you to the death.
0: As you would Telling that story, I felt sick in the pit of my stomach to think that with everything we know, that that's a reality.
1: Yeah. That's and, not recognised
0: um, in one area when yep. it is in another.
1: Yep. It, um, and the other one that I find really interesting is, and this is not government bashing, this is just fact, um, the state government in the last election gave 30-odd um, million to basically what is military, ADF, Australian Defence Force, veterans, cheap rego, free caravan rego, a whole heap of other things. There's about 30-odd million across four years, and there is a minister for veterans' affairs, so a state minister for a federally funded people, veterans' affairs. There is no veteran affairs minister for paramedics, ambulance, SES, Any of these frontline workers, police, anyone else, there's no one, absolutely no one that represents them now. Within a parliamentary system, I think there's maybe four, maybe five um, members of parliament in there that have a policing background. I've watched a video the other day where one stood up and and made mention of a few things. We get a lot of promises at uh, election time, believe it or not, but once the election cycle is over, that's it, gone. So I, to me, just take away the unfairness of it, it just doesn't make sense <laughs> you know, like, mm. because I'm still a CFA volunteer now. Over the coming summer, they're going to be telling me just, you know, how wonderful you are and how, you know, you've gone out and fought these good fires and given up your time and gone away on strike teams and done all that sort of stuff, except if I'm one of those volunteers and I become unwell – there's a good chance that organizationally I'm not going to get much support. And from a state level, I'm going to get zero.
0: This makes me wild.
1: It it does. And um what I've had to learn to do over the years is just switch off a bit mm. because it thinking about this stuff sometimes gets me unwell. But that one about state money going to federal. Issues and good luck to them for getting what they get. I mean, I don't begrudge them in a heartbeat, mm. but it just shits me because it just shows a lack of a lack of a lot of things, the lack of understanding it. And it took me a while to understand why they did it until a, a mate who's in the ADF um, told me, he said, you're in the last census. One of the census questions was, have you ever been in the ADF? And basically they can find out from that where you live. So I think Victoria figured out they had something like – well, I'm picking a bit of a figure here, so it's 100,000 veterans living in Victoria. Well, there's 100,000 votes if I give them free red, Joe, free this, free that, free everything else. That's the cynical part of my brain, oh, but it's got to be—it's got to be factual.
0: That winds so, me up so much. Yeah, Nick. wow. Yeah,
1: it's um, it's not fair. You know, it's a whole lot of no. things. It's not fair, but um, that's the nature of the beast. So I think that's one little fight. Even though I've stepped away from Police Veterans Victoria and a lot of other things social media stuff it's the one thing that is just going to keep me going i reckon every everyone needs a bit of a said don quixote one a bit of a windmill to tilt that i reckon that's <laughs> going to be mine
0: <laughs> at what point in your career did you have an inkling that, of the impact that it was starting to have and the, and the severity of it or maybe how how long it was going to
1: yeah, look, that's a good question. And I've thought about this a lot of times. Um, I remember sitting one day, I think Barb and I had just started going out and I went down to her place and I just started crying. I couldn't stop. and I didn't know why. <laughs> Anyway, eventually i come good. <laughs> but there was no trip in those days. If you were, and this is probably, you know, early 80s, there's no real trip in those days. You went to the, you know, and I work with guys. It's happened to them, you know. They, they were obviously unwell. They'd go to the police medical officer and get boarded out, and you never saw them again. And that was under the state pension system. So they were basically out the door. Someone had cleaned their locker out. That was it. But stupid as this sounds, you know that, Something is going on. Yeah, but you don't know how to deal with it.
0: It's that idea around. Uh, I was talking to a friend recently, and you know, like we have our our mind and the story and the the way that we can understand. So we can understand. So you can, everyone can understand a situation, and and. Get as much logic out of it as we can, but the body mm. has something else going on. yep, um mm. but a friend, my friend had quite significant surgery ten years ago on an accident, but at that time of her life a whole bunch of fairly traumatic personal things yep. went down yep. relating to that. So she got told of this minor surgery last week she had to get a little cyst out of her wrist. Mm. and as she was walking down from getting the the news of, that she'll be needing to do that. She just, she got sick in the stomach and dizzy and the nurse sat her down and said, I think you're just having a response to the news that you'll have surgery. And she's like, but it's just, so in her head, she's just, it's just minor, but the body was like, Oh no, we like, and it's, it's that gap. It's that gap between you might think, you know, you might have all of the information Yep. But the body's got something far more intricate going on and that's and that's kind of terrifying when you're in the middle of it and that's the hard thing for people that haven't experienced it to understand
1: mm. see I didn't and I suppose that's the thing I mean back in those early days and I've spoken to i' don't know literally hundreds if not thousands of people since in, in that time frame you you weren't given a a coping mechanism you know some people played sport because they wanted to play sport without realising the benefit of it. Some people, you run, ride a bike or whatever. I suppose subconsciously the mind might have been telling them, get out there and do this sort of stuff. But there was no one sitting down with you and saying, listen, uh, Mick, if you keep going to footy training, you know, it'll be good for you. Mm -hmm. If you keep doing whatever, you know, go out bushwalking, rafting, paddling, whatever, that'll be good for you. There was just that people knew, people that were in that industry knew that it was good. But no one knew it was good. Why? Mm. And that was the the part that you know through those early parts of the trauma. And it was probably until I did that peer support program in you know the early two thousands that it all made sense. I mean, and the and I think the acceptance now is to you know seek that information and seek that advice. And I remember one day I was I was having trouble. I couldn't there was a particular high-profile person on TV that his girlfriend had died uh, suicide. And I, I that was probably one of the last jobs I went to in, in VicPol. And I just – I couldn't stand to watch him on TV and I couldn't stand to read the articles about it or anything like that. If it'd come on TV, I'd just get up and walk out. So anyway, I went and saw a psychologist down in Warrnambool of all places. She was just fantastic. And she said, oh, yeah, we can deal with this in a heartbeat. She gave me a technique. I mean, I call it flooding. There's a technical name for it somewhere. And she said, just keep reading reading over and over about the article, about any news item you can find about it. Just keep reading and reading. And she said, one day your brain will say, I'm sick of this shit. I don't want to read this anymore and move on. And guess what? Worked. You know, it worked. Now, you know, similar sort of stuff may have existed back in the late 70s and early 80s. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. I just know that there was an awful lot of angst because I didn't know and I didn't know what to do and and a flow on effect to the family you know like like Barb's a nurse you know and and she's really really good at what she what she does and she could see what I was doing to me and you know I think a couple of times I spoke to a doctor probably in the mid 80s and in the country GP and he happened to be the training officer for a local ambulance service and he knew what was going on, and he sat down and had a, you know, quite a couple of number of conversations with me, and that sort of helped. If that makes mm. sense. Mm. But it should have been more like if I'd been exposed to more of it. And in the big scheme of things, I'm not particularly bad. I mean, I get upset over certain things for sure, but I'm not medicated. I still work and I can still function. Yeah. I have my bad days. I call them um, uh, Barb days. So if I say I'm not good. Um, I'm hanging around with you for the day. That's all there is to it. And it works a treat, you know.
0: I love that. I love that. She's your medication.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: (laughs) What's it like, or what what about the decision, I guess, both for yourself and and anyone that you've supported through their own journey of realising what the impact of of the career has on you, Mm. but then also staying within it and going, okay, well, it's having, it's had, had, and having an impact, and now I need to learn how to alleviate and manage that, but also yeah. stay in the job. So we want to get, we don't just want to stay the same. We probably want to get better. We want to yeah. improve symptoms yeah. or or impacts, but stay in the very system that is creating that outcome.
1: I think knowledge is power. Yeah. You understand what's happening to you and why it's happening to you, and how it can be. I, don't know, I hate the word treated. Treated. Are you ever going to go back to that same person you were as a 19 year old or whenever you joined the job? Absolutely not. You know, abs, no way in the world. But I think what you can do is get to a level where you can function quite okay. And so this is not for everyone. Some people, it will impact them so badly, they've just got to go, you know, for their own health and well being. And unfortunately, that's where it becomes a fight with. Um, independent medical examiners and all that sort of stuff. But sometimes you've just got to go. But if you can get to that stage where you can function, where you can function within your family, and remember that, uh, and this is what I say to them, you are itself others in the environment. You've got to be able to sort out yourself before you can support others Mm -hmm. and that environment of your family home. You know, if you're coming home being a grumpy bastard every night and, Going off tap because the kids haven't cleaned their teeth in, you know, at 6.04 at night time when they need to be in bed at 6.15. You've got to be able to deal with that. If you can't deal with that, then you've got to put some strategies in place that you can. And that business with a toothbrush, I went through that, you know. And all Bob said to me was it's pretty funny, actually. She said, enough, go for a walk. You know, and I was just my son was four or five years old at the time and I was supervising the toothbrush stuff and he wasn't doing it, I don't know, correctly, whatever. And I was just about to pick him up by the back of the scruff of the neck and, you know, bloody shake him like you wouldn't believe and um, and stuff like that, you know, and Bob said, no, go for a walk. And it wasn't probably that long later that I went and, you know, saw that doctor. But I think going back to your question is, you know, if, if you're that, not the centre of the universe, I think that's, probably a bad way of putting it but if you're the in that family unit if you're a central part of that family unit then you've got to do the best for yourself to be the best for others yeah you can't be the best for others when you're struggling yourself Mm. and that's that's what i've seen over that journey
0: yeah you talked about flooding before and i think the term i've that I would associate that with is exposure therapy. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew mean, there's a technical name.
0: Yeah. What do you think the line, or is there a line between, and how to how do we straddle it between exposing ourselves in that in that way as a form of therapy, exposure versus kind of maybe staying stuck or being anchored, being overexposed? Mm. When do we need to have separation and when do we need to lean into it? And is that – I mean, it's different for everyone, I
1: guess. The way that I've looked at it in a lot of cases is that people are in a holding pattern. Mm. If they're not prepared to put the landing wheels down, they're going to stay up there until the fuel runs out. It's as simple as that. What you've got to be able to do – And it's tough and I've been there and I've done it and bloody hell, it's um, it's a struggle. You've got to be able to reach in to yourself and go, right, what's going on isn't good for me and it's certainly not good for the people around me. And it mightn't be good for in a work environment. It mightn't be good for every time you lock up a crook that, um, you know, you're using violence, you know, when you don't need to, you know, it's all those sorts of things. What you've got to be able to do is reach into yourself and say, right, something's not right here, I'm, I need to do something to improve this, and then you've got to reach out. Now, you might reach out to 20 different things. It might be psychologist, psychiatrist. It might be medication. It might be physical activities. It might be art classes. It might be writing classes. It might be going back to uh, – or going to university to study something around the brain, although I don't recommend that because – Probably about 80% of the people I've seen do that, they're trying to look for answers that aren't there Mm. because they can't find them Mm. and in their own circumstance. But you've got to try everything because otherwise what you end up being is just this bitter twisted individual that's living in the past. I remember when I used to do this and I remember I was this and I was that and you're surrounding yourself with like-minded people. Mm. And if you want to go and live out in the bush with a whole heap of like-minded people and sit there and go, "Whoa, is me every day, or talk to them on a regular basis, woe is me every day, you're never, going to be, you're never going to improve. You'll be in that holding pattern for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. It's when you – but it takes a lot of bravery. And you think about – you say the word bravery, warrior, all this sort of stuff. I suppose I've spent uh, – with emergency services, maybe 40-odd. 44 years maybe, the more policing, um, community emergency response team for Ambulance Victoria The Barb and I were involved in, set up and run. Country Fire Authority is a volunteer, still in it. You run into stuff every day of the week. Some of it, you know, this could hurt. You know, some of this I might get injured, but you'll make the decisions based on what you know at the time and you go, right, somebody's got to do this, I've got to do this. So you'll go where, you know, angels fear to tread. You've got to have that same mentality for your own mind and say, I've got to improve, you know, I've got to get better. How do I do this? And you might go, like, I can honestly say and put my hand up and Mark Thomas will throw rocks at me. I've never used mindfulness in my life. You know, I probably never will. All the other things, Um um, I do go to a CrossFit gym three or four times a week. That's great. I don't go to yoga. Um, it's not that I don't trust anywhere to put my head somewhere else. It's just a lot of the time with that yoga stuff, I can't get to the downward dog position and get up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, I'd be a stuck dog. But um, it's it's what works for you, you know, and, and I don't criticize anyone for doing anything, as long as it's not self-harm in term- or harming others, you know, Against the law of the land, so to speak. But yeah, look, just do just do it. Just yeah. reach into yourself. Reach out.
0: Looking at, you know, where you've you know, it's not not just the police force, but all of the things that you've leaned into since then, you obviously have this enormous heart and this real drive to be of service to people and to help and to save and to so, my question around that is, how do you, how is the career, how do you navigate trust and empathy with the world, with relationships and people you love when, especially in policing, of, of all you're dealing with a lot of corruption and. Um,
1: I guess you separate it. And this is why I think one of the things that a lot of police find, and probably paramedics too, um, they find struggle to deal with is domestic violence. Mm. I mean, I know there is perpetrators of domestic violence in all emergency services, and I understand that, but that used to be the biggest shock to me, I think, of how could one human being do that to another? And generally, 99.9% of the time it was males versus females. I just never got it. And the first time I ever worked to a Christmas Day First year, first Christmas Day I ever worked. The bloke I was working the van with said, "We're on afternoon shift," and he said, "It'll be game on by about four o'clock." I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well, that's when everyone gets bloody plastered and lick it up, and they start to hate each other about that time." And I'm, and I'm, you know, I've come off a grave, driving camp. You know, I've grown up in the bush. We don't do stuff like that in the country. We have, you know, if we have a few. But Dad didn't drink much. You know, he was a violent bugger. Now that I've found out. Courtesy of World War II and post-traumatic stress disorder, but it was just a thing Mm -hmm. where it wasn't part of my lifestyle. So the – and I'm thinking of this, I'm working with this bloke, I'm thinking, hey, bullshit. (laughs) Anyway, we spent the next, I don't know, three hours over in um, South Oakley and all the suburbs around that refereeing people who were just hellbent on Christmas Day bashing the crap out of each other. I couldn't understand it. You know, like that was probably – of all the things that I've done over the journey, I just didn't get it. I thought it's Christmas Day for Christ's sake. You know, like what's going on? <laughs> why, why is this? So those sorts of things. Yeah, you know, to me that was the only thing that anything against kids and stuff, obviously. But um, because I never went down, I did probably I don't know five or six months temporary work at CIB divisions in um, Sunshine and Footscray. But I knew that life was never for me. I just knew I couldn't maintain it and maintain a marriage. So that's when I went up to the bush. I just walked away and thought enough's enough. Mm. But those things are sacrosanct to me. Um, the rest of it I can deal with. And, you know, the car accidents and all that sort of stuff, you know, you sit back, you take a breath, you do what you need to do, Um you sit back and, you know, deal with it the best you can. Yeah.
0: What sort of mistakes or or big lessons did you learn throughout the getting to peer support off the ground?
1: Um, I think I was given a a, probably a set of 10 rules of things you don't do. So right from the get-go, I broke them every time because I was told, you know, when I first did the course, you know, you don't enable people, you don't book them in to go to doctor's appointments, you know, you don't hold their hands while they take medicine, you don't, do this and you don't do that and you don't arrange for lawn mowing services and you don't arrange for house cleaning and you don't do this and you don't do that. I just looked at it I thought, I'll bullshit, I'll do whatever I want because I think what I'm looking for is that good outcome for the person, the best it can be. So I still remember um, going to a little town outside of Ballarat and there was a police person there who, um, she was really unwell and on some high quality medication and she'd rang her parents and said... You know, I'm thinking about ending at all. Um, they rang the station. The station rang me. I got in the car, drove for 20 minutes, and I sat with her while she took that medication and it calmed her down. It was pretty heavy-duty stuff, and then a family turned up. Yeah, so when you look at what I was taught versus what I was did, yeah, it never matched. Mm. I, I would do what I thought needed to be done to make that best Outcome I could for that person. Like I said before, there was some um, you know that we didn't save and we were never going to save, mm. and you had to accept that. But it hurt. You know, there's no doubt in the world it hurt. So there, some of the lessons I learned. But what I during that peer time, and and it's part of probably you know, scrambled up part of my brain in the 2000s was I would go and pick a fight with a one, two, three ranks above me because I thought, no, they're wrong. Well, they might have been wrong. They might have been right. But I was an absolute asshole. All the grief and heartache I brought on me—ninety-nine point nine percent of it was my fault. You know, it wasn't them that are doing to us. It was. It was just me, just looking for a conflict. And you know, in a physical sense, I didn't care. I'd knock them in the next week. You um but I mean, in Vic, in Vic, Pol, power is knowledge, and um, or knowledge is power, I should say. Um. So I immediately started to narrow down all the all the options that were going to be coming available to me. Um, simply because I, when I went down and saw an assistant commissioner about this, and I said, "What do I need to do?" And they, uh, well, she said, um, "You need to get yourself—they well, call it a sponsor or some bloody thing—that'll look after you and give you um, temporary upgradings and all that sort of stuff." And I said, "Well, who's that got to be?" And she rattled off the names, and I said, "But." There are souls, which was my fault. Instead of me just going, oh, yeah, good idea. Swallow my pride a little bit. No, we won't swallow our pride. We'll make things a bit tougher for, for myself. And that's why, you know, and, and that's a true story. And that's why I ended up going overseas to work in downtown Iraq because I thought it was a better and safer place for me. And for the first time, when I went over there, I did the interview in in Melbourne to, for the job that's right I did the interview for Melbourne in in Melbourne for the job and the three blokes interviewed me and they're all you know special force people and soldiers and coppers and you know they're all from the Hutter Hutter brigade you know muscles on their sweat and all that sort of stuff <laughs> And this bloke lifts his head up and he read my resume and he said, "You're exactly what we want for this program because I was, was training, teaching, and I had all the i Not gone. Well, shit, that's the first time I've heard that in about eight years, <laughs> and that was a fact, you know. So I thought hmm, these people actually like me and want me. But you know, shock horror, I'm going to work work in a war zone that you know eventually claimed the life of two of my two of my work colleagues in a roadside bomb by terrorists, but. I've been told that I was actually wanted. Ooh, hallelujah. You know, simple things like that. Now, if senior sergeant, inspector, superintendent, whatever, had sat me down and said, Mick, we actually want you to do this job, would I have still been there? Dunno. But no one ever said it. So, yeah.
0: You you make a really good point, you know, before when you were talking, just that idea of how we – arrive at that level of self awareness. You know, it takes I've looked back at times in my life and gone and realized that no one could have told me what I now know or see about yep. how who and how I was at a particular time. Hmm. And that's the that's the tricky part. Everyone's at a different stage and there's always talk about we're running around we're always searching for the answer like someone knows it. Like we will put like this whole world is a game a predetermined game that there mm. are there are actual answers and always saying to people, the answers that you're looking for, you're asking human beings that are conditioned and that you know, like they've got their own biases and challenges and traumas and yep perspectives and they've just come up with a decision on something. It's not an answer and it might not mm. even be the right answer for you. Like it's just an option.
1: Absolutely. One of the um, interesting things I went on a few years ago is a, a program called Trojan's Trek uh, based oh. over in Flinders Ranges and up in Queensland. It was started by some ex-military guys. And it. one of the things – and it took me a couple, it took me actually four days to actually get my head around all this. But the eventual thing is, I can't understand what you think about me. I shouldn't care about what you think about me. I can only be responsible for me right now. I can be responsible for maybe a couple of things that happened very short time ago or a very short time in frame of, in, that's going to happen in front of me. But the rest of it, is, is the right here and now. Now, one of the things that I did with whole peer support program is I I got a tremendous amount of um, satisfaction out of it, but I mixed up reward, which was doing the, the peer stuff, and we're talking literally, I don't know, I say thousands, but that sounds a bit wanky, but lots, lots and lots and lots. I think 800 in the first year. There you go. Um, but I mixed that up with recognition. So my belief was that I mixed the two up. So what I expected from VicPol is recognition. Well, I can't put myself inside their head mm-hmm. and I can't ring them up and say, listen, you guys, you need to recognise me. I can't ring up the Police Association of Victoria and say, listen, you guys need to recognise me because of all the wonderful things I've done. Or any other organization that I've been involved with because that's not how it works.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, over that journey of, you know, 20, 22, 23 years, whatever it is I've been involved in the peer program, they were the, that big mistake I made was getting reward and recognition mixed up. Recognition is nice, but for me to think that I deserve it, I really need to slap myself quite hard because the reward far outweighed any little bit of piece, piece of paper on the ground. But being human, I went through that process of going, ah, bastards, they don't bloody appreciate, that. do you know, none of them appreciate the fact that I would save them tens of thousands of dollars in time trying to deal with these people. Um, none of them appreciate the fact that, um, I mean, I think my contracting rate's a 1000 bucks a day when I'm doing the OH and this stuff. I've probably blown off, I don't know. 40, 50, 60 days over the journey, so $60,000 not in my pocket. Do I deserve um, recognition for that? Absolutely not. But a stupid part of my brain at one stage said, yes, I do. Now I look at it and go, you know, I would have only spent it on tractor parts and all sorts of weird shit, so, you know, what am I missing out on? But Yeah, lots of stuff that you learn. Like you say, you learn it, but you've got to learn it yourself, And you can't be worried about what other people think. Look after yourself. If someone asks me, what do you think about X, Y, and Z, I'll tell them. Mm -hmm. If they tell me what they think about X, Y, and Z, I'll go, okay. Simple. Same with social media. I've got rid of 99.9% of it. got my own Facebook page, which I enjoy. I monitor one that looks at military ADF mental health sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it, the police pages, just full of angry, bitter, twisted people, the majority of that want to whinge and bitch about, you know, all sorts of weird stuff that I have contra views to. So I have nothing to do with it. You know what? I feel great. I keep mm-hmm. getting phone calls, mm-hmm. come back, come back, come back. Not a way in the world. <laughs> no way. Code 9 the only one that I follow, but I don't – there's a Code 9 page that I can't get into and I don't want to. Or I can get into, but I don't want to, and I just follow the one where the troops are all doing the walking challenges and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, look, um, one, one of the things that crossed that journey too is I remember working at a hospital in the bush one day, and we had a fatal young kid who was killed out in the bush, and I think I drove the ambulance. I can't remember the story. I might have driven the ambulance back in because they were volunteer ambulance drivers those days, and you might have come out one out, one up. I drove it back in, so I basically took the child out of the back of the ambulance, walked into the emergency room. My wife's working there. It took me a long, long time to get over the fact that I was handing a deceased child to my wife. And um, it took me a long time to even... Thank her for it. And we went home that night. We were both on the same shift and it was pre kids, pre kids day. We never spoke about it. For a long, long time. Kept that stuff bottled up. Hmm.
0: When you when you guys did eventually speak about it, who who brought it up and how did you approach it?
1: Oh, I think I think we might have brought it up about seeing the dad somewhere and, yeah, we spoke about it and we both just said it was a shit job and um, we just sort of didn't go. I mean, I didn't go through the nuts and bolts of it mm-hmm. out of the scene and, you know, Barb didn't go through the nuts and bolts, <coughs> excuse me, on the job. But, um yeah, look, we've spoken about it since. But, you know, if you've got, I don't know, 10, dozen, 20 things that sit in the back of your mind mm-hmm. sometimes, um, that one will come up in every so often.
0: What's interesting about that is you guys both work in in a space where you're dealing with this type of thing and you're both, to a degree, have an understanding of what, you, what each other goes through. Hmm. Think about the people, and I don't know a lot of people in in. The in law enforcement are married to people on the job or in relationships yep. to people on the job because it seems to be just a little bit easier to, to understand one another, but there would be people who aren't. And if it's that difficult for you guys to talk about a job that you were basically in and experiencing together for people who aren't,
1: yeah, I mean, I, one of my good mates, he's um, he retired a few years ago and I'll never, never forget this. He said it, he's retirement function. He said, I kept everything from work at work. I never took it home. Mm -hmm. So to me, that says he never spoke about Mm -hmm. things. And those days we used to work one up and um, I could go to, you know, fatals and car accidents and there might be two or three cars turn up and then we'd all do our magic and then we'd all disappear. And there was no debriefing per se. There was just get in your car and go to the next job. You know, it's yeah, I I just find a lot of that um I find it's not an attitude, but I understand why they do it. They want to protect them from the things that they've seen. They don't want that with, you know, that whole vicarious liability, post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress sort of stuff now, you know. But um, yeah, you know, look, and I mean Barb's still nursing and um doing a mighty job. And, you know, there's days that I think, shit, I wish my brain was wired like hers, you know. <laughs> but um it's not. Um, but that just shows, I suppose, the different nature of everyone who does every one of those frontline first responder jobs that um, everyone's different, and everyone handles stuff different. Um, you see, even the best of the best, you yeah, know, Special Air Service regiment soldiers, you know, the hardest stuff men on the planet. And you'll see them in spaces they don't want to be in in terms of their mental health. And you think, you know, you, you equate. Been able to lift heavy things and shoot guns and run into bloody mud brick buildings and you know engage and kill the enemy with mental toughness, and it's got bugger all to do with it mm. because they'll, like me, they'll still keep running into stuff, yeah. But it's later on that you know you're dealing with some of that trauma,
0: yeah. Mark was absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really not it's been really nice to speak to you cause it's really nice to know that someone like yourself has been behind the development of peer support in that way and i think you're great
1: thank you no look it's been look it's been an interesting journey sad journey met some fantastic people um learned how to deal with a lot a lot of better stuff and like You know, the tears in the interview, it's just stuff that just sits there, bubbles along underneath. Every so, I mean, I can stand up in front of a crowd and sometimes I can talk about it and other times, you know, the tears run down the cheek. I don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. If I have to show, you know, if I show vulnerability, it's not because I want to, it's because it's a fact of life, you know, and I think anyone who listens to this segment of the, you know, part of the podcast, you know, be vulnerable, seek support treatment, understand itself others and your environment
0: yeah and i i think it's growth it's growth when you allow yourself to feel in the moment and express it and if that's yeah. just a tear in the middle of a sentence like embrace that because yep. in your line of work you've been you've trained your body and mind to suppress and get on with the job yeah. it's a beautiful
1: yeah. growth the funny thing is you know i through every job I've done, and that's like volunteer with a rural ambulance, Victoria, CFA, police, I never, ever, ever, ever shed a tear on the job,
0: yeah.
1: ever. Maybe I should have.
0: That's not how you were conditioned, though, Mick.
1: No. No. Yeah. No. Nah. No, nah. True. True.
0: Do you have anywhere you want to point the listeners? Some any resources
1: or Um look places? if yeah you know, all I can, you know, I suppose Police Veterans Victoria is the main one. Um, for us of for the police veteran community. Um, some good resources there, some brilliant people who run it. They've got a twenty four hour system that you can ring and get a call back. Beck, who's the clinical person in there, is great you know, for the rest of it. Look, I don't understand is if there is a life for paramedics after paramedic service. It might be, if you ever get one on the line one day, ask them. Likewise, I've never worried about the CFA one because I knew I always had police veterans to fall back onto. Mm. Likewise, the SES and, you know, the prison guys and and nurses and stuff, I you know, I don't know what's available for them post-service, but I hope there's something because... Without it, you know, it's a long, hard journey.
0: Mm. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation today and for everything you've shared.
1: No worries. Thanks, Tiff.